Making Sense of the Digital Society A podcast with answers to the big questions of digitalization. For everyone who wants to be in the know about the many debates. But we are not only trying to make sense of the digital society, we are also demystifying some of its buzzwords. Making Sense of the Digital Society is also a series of live lectures in Berlin that I have moderated since early 2018. My name is Tobi Müller and I am the presenter of this podcast. We cover a wide range of questions, such as how do we want to actively shape a digital world? How can these processes be aligned with public interest? What kind of knowledge do we need for this? What are the underlying changes in society beyond the hype over new technological developments? What is power in the digital society and how is it distributed? Do services fueled by algorithms and artificial intelligence improve our lives or do they enforce social inequalities? And what role do cities play in this transformation like infrastructure and public goods? We combine summaries from the lecture series Making Sense of the Digital Society and conversations with international experts. You will hear renowned scientists talk about their research and discuss key issues. Their topics are diverse. Complex problems need attention from various disciplines in order to come closer to an understanding of the time we live in now and want to live in tomorrow. We know Facebook collects the connections of users to gather relevant information. We are more or less aware that Google datafies search queries and information retrievals, as well as Twitter news and real-time information. In all of these cases, we speak of data harvesting. The datafication of our world has fundamentally changed our society on many levels, and we should be aware that these changes have not always been beneficial. In this episode, we will explore the impact of platforms on society. The reuse of our data, which we distribute every day and almost everywhere, leads to a new kind of capitalism. But have you heard about data colonialism? Data colonialism is a concept coined by Nick Coldry and Ulysses Mejias. They argue that the current datafication of society is producing not only another variant of capitalism, but also a new form of colonialism. Accordingly, we are witnessing the beginning of a new era in human history that rivals in importance the emergence of historical colonialism. In short, the emergence of a new data colonialism based on the appropriation of human life through data. Nick Coldry is Professor of Media, Communication and Social Theory at the London School of Economics and Political Science. From Karl Marx, he derives the notion that history is man-made, capital operates through social forces, and nothing has ever been natural, that is to say, without an alternative. Which also means that nothing will ever be without an alternative. Even though some information and communication technologies present us every day with a reality that can easily seem like second nature, Nick Coldry argues that we should never stop questioning and challenging power structures that seem unchallengeable. Here's the excerpt from Nick Coldry's talk titled Colonized by Data, the hollowing out of digital society, given in November 2018 in Berlin. It's an urgent appeal to think back only a few decades and ask, is this the digital society we wanted to live in? Something big is going on with data. Data is not just big in terms of volume, as reflected in the phrase big data. 
Something transformative is happening with data. Now, we've known this since at least the revelations of Edward Snowden in summer 2013. The real story of those revelations was not the one emphasized in the media about the surveillance by NSA and GCHQ of ordinary and sometimes, as in the case of uh, President Merkel, less ordinary citizens. The real story was how much data corporations were already collecting from us, from which governments simply sought to benefit. A story about the public-private surveillance partnership, as US security expert Bruce Schneier calls it. And in this lecture, I want to look deeper into what's going on with data. And I'll be drawing on my forthcoming book with the Mexican-US scholar Ulysses Mejias called The Costs of Connection. Now, the core point of our book is that what's happening today in digital societies where data harvesting seems such a natural, such a basic feature of everyday life is not just a development or even a new phase of capitalism, as many writers have claimed, it's something even bigger. It's a genuinely new phase of colonialism that will, in time, provide the fuel for a later stage of capitalism whose full shape we cannot predict yet. And this is what we start to see if we shift the timescale from the past 30 to 40 years, in which, for sure, capitalism has become embedded into ever more sectors of daily life, to the past 500 years over which the relations of capitalism to colonialism have played out. We're thinking about colonialism here in terms of its fundamental historical function, as the appropriation of resources on a vast scale. In 1500, and for the next 400 years, it was territory that was acquired. It was the resources of the land and, of course, the bodies for a long time those of slaves, needed to extract value from those resources. Today, the resources being appropriated are us. Human life, in all its depth, extracted as value through the medium of data. But Ulysses and I, when we talk about data colonialism, we do not mean it as a metaphor. We are claiming instead that what is going on with data today represents, potentially, as far-reaching an appropriation of resources as the conquest of gold and territory in historic colonialism, a land grab in digital territory that is likely to have as far-reaching implications as historical colonialism did, a colonial reality, not a metaphor, which we are living and which, to which we need to wake up. Think of the terms of service to which we sign up every time we install an app, every time we join a platform. That's my phone, by the way. In normal times, I don't mean the few days after the Cambridge Analytical scandal broke. In normal times, no one reads the terms. We just click accept, because we want to get on and use the app or the platform. Sometimes our acceptance is just assumed, no questions asked though the GDPR has tried to disrupt that assumption. Sometimes our employer encourages us to use a Fitbit to monitor our health, which requires us to accept Fitbit's terms and conditions, whether we like them or not. Or 
we may be required to accept terms and conditions of data extraction by an insurer or by the supplier of a smart appliance in our home. But by that act of acceptance, actual or implied, we enter into a whole set of what Ulysses and I call data relations that unfold in ways we understand only very partly. It sometimes seems a mystery how we can accept so much with so little resistance. But let's think historically through a colonial lens. Let's think back to a document used in the early days of the Spanish conquest of Latin America called the requerimiento, or demand. Almost exactly 500 years ago, the document was drafted in 1513 at the Spanish court. Conquistadors were right up to a mile or two outside a village whose gold they wanted. And read out this document. In the middle of the night, in Spanish, a language they knew the locals did not understand. Here's a little of it. But if you do not submit, I accept, I certify to you that with the help of God, we shall powerfully enter into your country and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can and shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and of their highnesses. We shall take away your goods and shall do you all the mischief and damage that we can. The next morning, they will ride into the village and take the gold that they wanted, using whatever violence they needed to do so, and usually more. Now, you'll notice immediately a difference, that we really do click accept. And so no violence is needed to take our gold as we use the platform or app whose terms appear to us. I'll come back to why that is in a moment, but first, let's try to map more precisely the key features of historic colonialism onto data colonialism today. The fundamental moves and historic function of original colonialism can be understood in terms of four levels. The appropriation of resource, the creation of new social relations to stabilize that appropriation, the extreme concentration of wealth that flowed from that appropriation, and finally the ideologies that were used to tell a different story of what was going on, most notoriously the ideology of civilization. And we see exactly these same four levels at work with data colonialism. First, there is the appropriation of resources, I've said. Human life itself, human experience and action become a direct input to capital. This is often told to us as a cliche, the idea that it's just worthless human exhaust that is taken, something just naturally there anyway for the taking, which conveniently forgets all the mechanisms that are needed to gather, format, extract, and process this supposedly natural resource. Second, social relations are being colonized by data processes as all social relations increasingly take the form of data relations that maximize data extraction for value. Third, the economic value that's extracted is hugely concentrated in the vast wealth of new colonial corporations, what Ulysses and I call the social quantification sector, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and so on. 
And finally, there are new colonial ideologies that seek to disguise what is going on. Not the idea of civilization exactly yet, but the idea that we must always stay connected, that everything must be put into data form so that, for example, we can get more personalized messages and products. And the idea that all of this, including the tracking, is somehow inevitable. So we can see all four dimensions of historic colonialism at work in our life with data today. But there's one crucial difference. Unlike in 1500, when colonialism emerged without the background of two or three centuries of capitalism, today's new colonialism builds on top of the already existing social order of capitalism, which is why it does not generally need violence to be effective. Let's not suppose, however, that this massive transformation of social knowledge will play out equally for everyone. As important research by Virginia Eubanks and others has shown, it is populations who are already vulnerable and poor that are most likely to be harmed by hidden data-driven judgments made against them by government departments, service suppliers, credit raters, insurers, and so on. By the same token, these same people are the least likely to be able to resist. It costs money to mount a legal claim. And when they look for work, the low-paid work that they can get is likely to come with the compulsion to accept still more surveillance than is normal in higher status work. A social world then is emerging where vulnerability to forced acceptance of continuous surveillance is likely to become a leading dimension of inequality. Is there a risk that in this critique we're idealizing the past quietly? When, of course, populations were victimized, stereotyped, excluded silently from resources? I don't think so, provided we are precise about what is in danger of dropping out of our picture of the social world as this new form of social knowledge installs itself. And there are at least three answers to that question. First, and most directly, we are in danger of losing hold of those older models of social knowledge and the categories that they generated. For example, the idea of poverty as a socially caused phenomenon that can only be understood by attention to all the socioeconomic factors that are statistically correlated with it. As Marion Foucard, an earlier speaker in this lecture series, wrote, older rationales for giving the poor more favorable terms because they were poor, that is socially disadvantaged in ways we understood, have now in America largely been replaced with the idea that the terms of credit ought to depend solely on one's prior credit-related behavior. That is, on the risks those people pose within commercial risk systems, as tracked, of course, by impersonal algorithms. Second, we risk losing hold of older forms of expertise and judgment that are not respected by the new model of social knowledge. So American legal theorists who studied algorithmic processes in local governments and the courts conclude that opaque algorithms risk, as they put it, hollowing out the decision-making capacity of public servants 
Why? By creating a distance between their decisions and the evidence gathering on which those decisions still have to rely. Third, perhaps most dangerous of all, we risk all of us losing the habit of expecting that our knowledge of the world around us should be grounded in what people say and how people, not machines, actually interpret the world. That is, it should be grounded in our voices. And because it is only that view of the social world that makes it rational to think democracy is worth striving for, we may lose touch with the value of democracy itself, at least as an everyday reality, something we know. There's no accident, therefore, that in a country which is not a democracy, China, Huge emphasis is being placed on gaining global leadership of artificial intelligence by 2030. So perhaps we should take seriously Zhu Bo, a member of China's Academy of Military Science, when he proposed in the Financial Times this September that, quotes, the road to prosperity no longer runs only through liberal democracy. It may also be no accident that there are links reported by some journalists between leading US figures associated with the exploitation of artificial intelligence, such as Peter Thiel, the founder of Palantir, and extreme right-wing thinkers who've abandoned all loyalty to democracy. There may be counterexamples too, of course, such as Estonia's much-cited vision for a digital society, where it's the state that guarantees this management of personal data whose ownership, but perhaps not control, remains with the individual. But the Estonian vision only covers the individual's relations with the state. It doesn't cover the wider market for data, which is a feature of the corporate sector in Estonia, as in most other places. And finally, as an academic, I must acknowledge the social sciences' strange complicity today in these developments. I mean the new research from behavioral economics to cultural theory, which is often more interested in challenging, even mocking, the idea of a rational human subject than defending it. Not many steps from this to the frequent claim of marketers through artificial intelligence to know their customers better than they know themselves. So the message that I want to leave you with tonight is this, that the digital social world is being reconstructed all around us not through an evil conspiracy, but through a practical combination on the ground of a new corporate rationality and the changes that this rationality encourages and often compels in how we live our daily lives. We are complicit in this transformation until we choose not to be. Is this the future for digital society that we had imagined? and that we actually want? If not, then we must start to imagine a different future. And this is not easy. I agree with historian Yuval Harari, who wrote recently that opposing, opposing the ideology of dataism is, quotes, not only the greatest scientific challenge of the 21st century, but also the most urgent political and economic project. The challenge, in fact, is even greater because the social transformation, as I brought out, that's going on, that's driving it, is largely hidden. 
It risks, to quote one of my favorite German authors, W.G. Sebald, it risks becoming a silent catastrophe that occurs almost unperceived. So now is the time for our eyes to be wide open about what is going on with data. And that is why Ulysses and I have written our book, building on much great work by many other writers. It is indeed a time to work and think together to face these profound challenges. But time is short. Thank you for listening. You have heard Nick Coldry on digital colonialism. We now move on to a more economic outlook on the digital society through the lens of a comparative sociologist by training and taste, as she calls herself, Marion Fourcade. She is a professor of sociology and director of social science matrix at UC Berkeley. Marion Fourcade is interested in national variations in knowledge and practice. Her books include Economists and Societies, in which she explores the distinctive character of the discipline and profession of economics in three countries. Fourcade's upcoming book, The Ordinal Society, investigates new forms of social stratification and morality in the digital economy. Marion Fourcade was a speaker in our series Making Sense of the Digital Society in May 2018, and I've talked again to her by video call in the fall of 2021. Here's an edit of our conversation. So welcome, Marion Foucault, to this podcast. We all know you are writing about the Ordinal Society. It's a book under contract with Kieran Healy that will come out sometime. We're um, very eager <laughs> to read that book. So let me start about, you know, ask you about the concept of ordinal citizenship, the distribution of social status in the digital age, as opposed to the historical concept of social citizenship. Can you tell us what separates the two basically? What's the real difference between ordinal citizenship and social citizenship? Well, the social citizenship is thinking essentially about social rights. You know, we typically think of the welfare state as being about sort of the you know, the extension of a number of rights, uh, insurance, education, and so on, and employment. And, you know, the idea of ordinal citizenship is taking this uh, notion of rights, but saying, well, you know, you're making it much more conditional. You're making it conditional on people's performance and some sort of measure that you have decided, and hence the word ordinal. So that it's a, it's a form of citizenship that makes access to social rights and maybe even other kinds of rights, like rights to naturalization, you know, like national citizenship. It makes it conditional on some sort of process of measurement of, of people submitting themselves to this measurement process and, and, of course, on their performance on this, you know, what we would call an ordinal scale. So that's the idea. And you see that, you know, we've seen the beginning of this. Uh, in a number of domains. For instance, in the domain of national citizenship, already there's a number of countries that use a point system, but there have been calls, for instance, in the US under Trump for um, bringing uh, measurements from other domains, from like the credit system into, you know, the uh, decisions about awarding someone 
green card, you know, giving people green card or making them eligible for national citizenship. And there's a number of countries also that are using these kinds of measurement systems already for the attribution of various kinds of social rights. So it's the idea that uh, ordinality makes it a lot, makes the accession to rights a lot more individualized. And of course, the duties that are attached to it a lot more individualized. And, you know, there is this demand for people submitting themselves to a process of measurement through, you know, the sometimes quite nosy processes of disclosing certain kinds of information or checking into systems repeatedly and so on and so forth. So that's the broad idea of, of a citizenship that is sort of conditional, you know, conditioned on these um, measurement systems. Some of those, what you call citizenships now, always have been conditional in some way. When we talk about the credit system that you've written a lot about, it's always been conditional on some parameters, of course. But what is sort of new or maybe um, describes a certain change when we talk about the ordinal society is that the state is more and more bypassed by uh, private tech companies in this respect. So um, do you think there is a chance of that changing actually? Or is there an opening somewhere in what you call ordinal citizenship that the state sort of regains a power it has in some areas lost to private companies? In many ways, there is a convergence between the state's goals and private corporations' goals. That is, uh, you know, the state is actively using tools that were developed in the private sector to uh, make these assessments, you know, worthiness, if you want, of individual worthiness. Um, so, for instance, you know, the proposal, which didn't come to pass, but to incorporate the credit score and credit reporting into sort of general assessments about the possibility of accessing national citizenship or green card or so on. You know, that's importing something that was developed for a totally different purpose into a system that is controlled by the state. So there is, you know, there is definitely that that sort of convergence that is happening. But of course, the state is also developing its own systems and, you know, asking people to, for instance, provide a lot of personal data when they, you know, when they apply for some sort of benefit. And then once they are in the system to continuously demonstrate certain kinds of behavior in a way that is recordable, right? So the state might actually then produce measures that could be used by the private sector. So you might have this sort of interactions, convergences, synergies, I don't know how to call them, you know, between the two. And so I, you know, I have no idea how this might shake out in the end, you know, how, you know, who's going to have the upper hand. But this is not to say that the state is just simply subject to the power of private companies here. I mean, it's also creating its own because it has its own goals, right? And we're seeing that, for instance, in sort of, you know, um, no-fly lists and all of that. I mean, the state has, has tools to already create uh, these sort of assessments of risk. And the question is, you know, are these kinds of tools, you know, can they be exported elsewhere in the same way that credit scores are being imported into the state system? Let us stick to that very interesting notion of convergence, I think, can we say what the tech sector calls engagement, usually with uh, on algorithmic driven platforms, engagement of users is what the state would call inclusion, because that's, of course, 
the big criteria of Western democracy in the last 50 or 60 years is the notion of inclusion to make democracy more inclusive. And do you think that actually happens with digital or ordinal citizenship, that inclusion is actually increased, not just rhetorically, but really? Yes, so inclusion has been one of the main political arguments, you know, for the development of these systems, partly because it is true that digital tools give people access to all kinds of opportunities that might otherwise be foreclosed to them. And so the idea of extending broadband, making computers more available, all of that the idea that this might have some positive social effects is not, you know, it's not a false idea. And there's plenty of ways in which, you know, people might be connected to, you know, the communities they really care about. They might find a job. They might be able to sell their work in sort of new ways. So there's lots of reasons why we might want digitality to sort of be expanded. But of course, when we do that, the terms under which that happens are often very much controlled by, you know, these large digital behemoths or, you know, quasi-monopolies. And it's being used in ways that, you know, it, it, they can have quite negative effects. There's a big literature that shows that there are very clear discriminatory effects, for instance, of some of these systems. Some of my work with Kieran Healy, you know, suggests that, you know, new kinds of inequalities might actually appear, not simply the inequality that we care about when we think about inclusion, which is the inequality between those who are inside and those who are outside the system. But once you're inside, there's lots of new kinds of inequalities that might emerge around sort of the ranking and the scoring of people. And so that the terms under which everybody is served might differ from person to person in ways that can be quite consequential for their opportunities and their life chances. So that's sort of the core of, you know, our critique. But, you know, we don't want to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, it's at the same time, you have to acknowledge, you know, that uh, there is something that is quite laudable and quite positive about the process of inclusion. You know, in the same way that you know, I think I make in the ordinal citizenship paper, I make an analogy with the extension of the education system. So you extended, you know, there were lots of people who are not, who didn't have access really to, to education. So you extend primary and secondary and then later on higher education to much larger population. But once everybody is in, you know, you have these stratification processes that are happening within include and processes of stigmatization and so on. So, you know, it's not like, by including everybody, you can get rid of social structure. And I think that's partly what we are, what we are saying is that uh, inclusion is always double-edged. Societies will always differentiate, right? They will always, they will always exclude. And the, the, so the means of exclusion are, are different. The hard, the hard part is that it may be harder to criticize a system in which everybody is included but ranked according to, say, their behavior, than to criticize a system in which there are people who just have no access to it. There, the solution seems pretty obvious, but uh, the, the political critique of a, of a system of uh, you know, ranking and scoring uh, of a stratified system is a lot more difficult. 
One of the big problems that uh, sociology, of course, is very aware of, especially in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, correct me if I'm wrong, is um, the concept of meritocracy. Mm -hmm. So uh, digital citizenship is sometimes used uh, rhetorically as a tool to overcome meritocracy. What you just said now is actually, well, it's the same concepts. It's just a different form of scaling uh, that is used actually in the digital society and then the platforms. Is there an opening for change there? Do you think there are certain aspects of the digital citizenship that are able or would be able in the future to overcome the bad aspects of meritocracy that are uh, certainly haunting large parts of uh, the Northern Hemisphere? Yes, and of course, so the meritocracy is the exact example, right, of, you know, what the education system, you know, essentially at the end of the, you know, at the end of studies, you know, people are sort of ranked and, you know, supposedly, you know, have access to social positions based on that, you know, their performance in the in the system. But of course, then, um, you know, sociologists have shown that there's plenty of ways in which the old elites actually manage to do well in that system. Um, and so the meritocracy has the same, you know, is not outside of the, you know, social structure of, uh, you know, the distribution of property relations and so on, you know, the big classical economic anchor. Plus there are other problems, like the meritocracy tends to sort of reproduce itself. And we see that today in sort of the political struggles, you know, against the elite. And But the elite being not so much the economic elite today, Right. But the elite that, uh, you know, sort of especially right wing populism, but also, you know, some some left wing populism are challenging and criticizing is very much the educated elite, Right. Who sometimes noses and, and look down upon the regular folks and so on and so forth. So we see that, you know, all of these are the problems of the meritocracy. So what is the solution with digital tools? Well, you know, it is to create another kind of meritocracy. Right. It is to create a meritocracy where, you know, now you're. You're not scoring people so much on their performance in the um, in the educational system, but you score them on their performance, you know, on some various tools and their, you know, their fitness for the job. And, you know, so you have a lot of other ways, but ultimately this is also producing a certain kind of meritocracy. You know, I'm, what I'm seeing is that there's a lot of hope that's being put into this, hope for inclusion, hope for, you know, bypassing, you know, the old meritocracy. And certainly there are people who will be elevated through this system who might not have been in the old meritocracy. And we see that with, you know, people taking courses online and so on. And so, you know, being outside of the mainstream of higher education, for instance, and um, finding their place that way. But, you know, whether that will fundamentally change the social structure You mentioned Fitbits, you know, uh, wristbands that you know, tracking devices, basically, that sometimes are used to um, get benefits with uh, social insurance in some countries, at least in various countries in Europe as well. Uh, but of course, there's also maybe a tiny bit of emancipatory potential there that uh, people are doing that. Maybe they work less. I mean, they do more running. Maybe they're out in the open. Um, maybe with some social media, they're able to maintain relations that otherwise would be very hard to maintain, especially during a pandemic uh, that we're still in the middle uh, of somehow. 
Of course, all those bad sides you've been talking about that are sort of reproduced now in the digital age of a meritocracy sort of based on a very simple capitalist paradigm, which is to extract value from those kind of engagements, right? And I'm, I keep wondering or have been wondering for many years now, uh, is this also a coding problem? I mean, would it be actually possible to design platforms that would then be state-owned, that wouldn't be in private hands, that uh, do not rely so heavily on the extraction of value by the individual and do something else. I mean, some Asian countries are actually trying to do that. They uh, reprogram their algorithms of social media that do not favor so much uh, hate speech, for example, or uh, fake content, visual contents, and so forth. I mean, it could be possible to sort of solve, not solve this problem, but to correct this problem a little bit technologically. Where do you see chances of that happening in the Northern Hemisphere? Is it coding-wise? Can we do coding can we wise, build better machines? Better machines, I don't know. You have to ask that to, uh, <laughs> to a computer scientist. I'm, I'm a big believer in... Uh, good arts law, right? Uh, sort of this idea that, you know, as soon as you have a measure and that measure becomes a target, then it ceases to be a good measure. And so, you know, I mean, people here find ways to get around these tools and, uh, you know, make them work. You know, this is what uh, uh, sociologists of technology call affordances, right? There's, there are the, the uses that thing was designed was designed for, and then there are the uses that, that people, you know, find and uh, and that might actually completely thwart to your, the original purpose. So, so that's you know that's a complicated question. But sure, I mean there's lots of ways in which societies right now are grappling with these problems. So one is, you know, the possibility of actually creating some sort of public data trust, right? Where you know the data that's being collected on people would be sort of centralized in an institution that is managed according to some ethical principle that have nothing to do with sort of uh, business incentives and, you know, like a sort of public utility, if you will. So that's one possibility. I mean, some people are sort of nervous in putting so much power and so much data in the hands of the state, you know, knowing that, the well, what if the police accesses this kind, you know, there's lots of reasons why. Is it centralized or is it not, for example? Is it, yeah. Well, so there's the question of centralization, but there's also the question of, you know, who, that's why, you know, lots of people are calling not for the state directly, but for some sort of, again, public trust kind of design. And then, of course, there's, a, you know, the other big possibilities is regulation. So I think, you know, the U.S. is trying right now to design new ways of regulating the private entities so that some of the, you know, most problematic effects are diminished or, or, or lessened. Personally, I mean, I think the real problem is the question of individuation once you have a lot of data about individual persons, you can differentiate so much. And that differentiation becomes imbued with certain morality, you know, that creates a social order that becomes legitimate because, well, essentially individuals get what they deserve. And that makes it very hard to think about solidaristic institutions. That makes it very hard to think about the cross-subsidization of risk, 
that makes it very difficult to uh, keep institutions like the welfare state functioning in the way that it has before, you know, to make benefits essentially universal. Uh, so that's what worries me the most, actually. It is the it is what it's doing to our political imagination. So that solidarity is an that's individual problem at the end, right? Yes, exactly. The difficulty to conceive of, of solidarity in a system in which individuals can be represented by, you know, numbers and numbers can be attached to assumptions about deservingness and undeservingness. You know, the question of deservingness and undeservingness is not new. It's It's been central to the welfare state for a very long time. And that's why arguments about sort of universal benefits, you know, not having things that are means tested and so on are so important. They are not important necessarily from a point of view of efficiency and so on. Although you could make those arguments. And I actually believe that, you know, it's mm -hmm. more efficient just to just to give benefits uniformly to, you know, the healthcare. And distribute risks. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, just because it's a lot easier to manage so that, you know, economically it makes sense, but it also makes sense. And where it makes most sense is actually politically. What kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in, in a society where, you know, you're constantly second guessing your neighbor and, and trying to figure out, you know, do they really deserve or, you know, you want to go out on a date and you're trying to, you know, to decide, well, is that, you know, is that person really worthwhile? Or do you want to live in a society where, you know, you're, you're not asking yourself constantly these kinds of questions? And I think that's really important you know, to maintain a sort of social glue. I guess this is the Durkheimian in me that's sort of speaking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you think those questions will be absolutely necessarily have to be negotiated online? I think that goes back to the, you know, your question earlier about sort of worrying about disinformation and, and sort of, you know, the breakdown of the of normal politics, if you will. And, and showing that there is a possibility for all kinds of new solidarities to emerge thanks to these technologies, mm -hmm. you know, to create, a, to forge a new kind of social contract around these technologies. But right now, what we're seeing is that the incentives are so bad. I mean, I just saw yesterday something about Fox News that said that engagement with Post and you know, they the go much more viral, so high, right? and these are so profitable that you know, in part, there might be conviction. Although, you know, as you know, all the Fox News uh, hosts and uh, you know, personnel is vaccinated, you know, the incentives are so bad. So, that's that's what needs to change, and that's you know, that's fundamentally a political problem. So, it's a problem of you know deciding how to regulate these institutions. But once you once you do, it is true that there is enormous potential for, you know, using these, uh, these technologies to sort of sustain and support the kind of solidarity that I was talking about simply by virtue of the fact that they allow people to communicate so much more. Thank you so much, Marion Foucault. At one point you said, sorry for being so pessimistic about things. Now we ended on a little bit of a different note uh, at last. Yes. Um, very much looking forward to your book with Kieran Healy and thanks a lot for talking to us. Thank you so much. <laughs> We would like to end this episode with nudging you to what else we have to offer online. There are some things in the digitalized world that we might have wondered about a few years ago, but that seems self-evident to us today. 
One aspect is the language we use to describe digital technologies, cloud, big data, piracy, virus. These are common terms in the debates about digital technologies. At the same time, they are metaphors that originate from other fields than technology. What normative or political baggage do they therefore carry? How does this vocabulary shape the emerging digital society? Answers to these questions can be found in the series of articles on how metaphors shape the digital society in which different authors analyze the deeper meanings of these metaphors' views every day. All materials mentioned in this podcast and a large number of other interesting resources can be found at hiig.de slash making minus sense and bpb.de slash digital society in one word. Making Sense of the Digital Society is a production of the Alexander von Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society and the Federal Agency for Civic Education. My name is Toby Müller and I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Editing and production, Christian Graufogel and Filine Janus. Executive producer, Christian Graufogel. Sound design and recording, Juri Bader.